Hi, this is Christopher Perrin, and welcome to The Christopher Perrin Show on the True North Podcast Network. This show is dedicated to exploring the great ideas of the great conversation as they relate to the renewal of classical education. In this particular show, we're going to explore the great idea of wisdom. Wisdom is hard to define, isn't it? But it's one of the great aims that is sought for through an education. What is wisdom? Where did it come from? How do we attain to it? And how does it relate to the educational enterprise? Thanks for joining me on this episode of The Christopher Parent Show. This episode is one of the first episodes on the show, and it's dedicated to one of the great goals of education, and that is wisdom. Wisdom is one of the three great outcomes that we seek when we seek to become educated. Wisdom, virtue, and eloquence. Those three were often considered to be the great ends or aims of an education. And all three of these words are not very well known. I mean, if you were to be asked on the spot to stand up and give a brief description, maybe in two or three sentences of wisdom, well, how would you do? Could you do that right now? I remember thinking about this years ago and thinking I would utterly fail. It's one of those things that I think we know, but can't easily describe. And the same is true of virtue. What in the world is virtue, really? How would you define virtue or eloquence? Well, these three great aims of education are related, related to the concept of leading a good and flourishing life, trying to reach a good life. Wisdom is that that sense of knowing what is good, knowing what the good is. And virtue is in being able to embody the good in the moral and intellectual life, say. And eloquence is a good human being who can speak well. Uh, Quintilian described eloquence as the good man speaking well. So these three aims, which are eminently practical aims, are also very lofty aims. But let's start with wisdom, even though these three master concepts, have, if you will, are related. Wisdom, what is it? How do we define it? Well, can I start with a quotation? Uh, we'll, we'll get to a definition and a description, and we'll do some comparison. But let me just start with a definition, or excuse me, a quotation from one of the great writers on education, one of the great thinkers of education, who's John Henry Newman, writing in the late 1800s. He writes about what an education is. This is from his idea of the university. He's describing what happens when someone becomes mature, when their mind or intellect is mature or what he calls perfected by a good education. And by perfection here, he doesn't mean flawless. He just means well-developed or mature. He writes, The perfection of the intellect, which is the result of education, and its beautiful or bow ideal, to, Im to be imparted in their respective measures is, well, this. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Here's what he says it is. It is the clear, calm, accurate vision and comprehension of all things. So as he begins his description or definition of what the results of a great education are, he says it's this clear, calm, accurate vision of all things, a comprehension of all things. So it's big. 
In fact, this isn't a bad definition for what wisdom is. It's a clear, calm, accurate vision and comprehension of the whole. It's what many have called in the tradition of the great ideas, the science of the whole. But he goes on. Wouldn't you like to hear the the rest of this? He goes on and he says, it's this comprehension of all things as far as the fine fine mind can embrace them. Meaning we can't have complete wisdom, but we can get so far. What it's, it's, it's an ideal to reach for that we will never completely attain. And it's as far as the fine man can embrace them. Uh, fine mind, I keep saying man, it's fine mind, and it's men and women we're talking about here. It's as far as the fine mind can in- embrace them each in its place and with its own characteristics upon it. It is almost prophetic from its knowledge of history. Love to unpack that, but we need to keep going. It's almost heart-searching from its knowledge of human nature, which comes through reading and literature and experience, of course. It has almost supernatural charity from its freedom from illness and prejudice. And we need that. Someone who's well-educated should be freed from prejudice and little-mindedness, we might say. It is or small-mindedness. It is almost, it has almost the repose of faith because nothing can startle it. It has almost the beauty and harmony of heavenly contemplation. So intimate is it with the eternal order of things and the music of the spheres. Now, we just don't talk about education this way, do we? (laughs) The eternal order of things, the the music of the spheres, heavenly comprehension, the clear, calm, accurate vision and comprehension of all things. But this is what education has traditionally aimed for, and we have called it by wisdom. Just note this phrase, contemplation. Where is contemplation in our educational vocabulary? And yet it was considered to be one of the high things that education leads to. Deep thinking and reflection about the things that matter most, the great ideas and the great conversations of human history, and even the eternal order of things. Is there an order of things? And can it be known, each in its place? And Is there something like the music of the spheres? What in the world is he talking about? Well, it illustrates. If you don't know what he's talking about, and I certainly didn't know what what he meant by the music of the spheres, say, 25 years ago when I first really started to study the history of education. The music of the spheres is is a hearkening back to ancient reflection on the movement of the stars and the planets. It was thought by some of the ancient astronomers and mathematicians that anything that moves must make music, must make a sound. And if we can't hear the sound of the planets orbiting, it's simply because we as of yet don't have the ears to hear that music. But we could strive for it. And we know that there is music, even if we can't hear it. So that's the music of the spheres. It's a it's a reference to this understanding that the cosmos was a kind of ordered harmony 
and that to some degree humans, based on their education, study, contemplation, and reflection, and ongoing conversation, could know something of that harmony, the way the parts relate to the whole. And this is one way of getting at wisdom. But let's go on. After considering that great quotation from John Henry Newman, let's talk about what it is. I I must say this. A lot of what I'm going to have to say about the great ideas as they relate to education is not something new with me. It's not that I am a great original thinker. It's because I rely on people like John Henry Newman. And uh, you'll find me often quoting from the great book set, the two, the, the two volumes that come with the, with the great book set, uh, the great ideas set uh, produ- uh, produced by the, the uh, Britannica Publishing Company edited by Mortimer Adler and Robert Hutchinson, the two volumes that come at the beginning of that great book set are just worth having at almost any price. They're the two, uh, two volumes of the Syntopicon, which contain some 102 great ideas discussed in about 15 to 20 page essays. And there's a great essay in the Syntopicon, volume two, on wisdom. And I'm indebted to that article. So I'm going to follow it pretty closely, and I'm also taking some trails on my own. This article notes that wisdom is something that we typically ascribe not to the human race generally, but to individuals in particular. It just seems that the race, the human race, doesn't always grow in kind of a progressive, linear, you know, movement towards greater wisdom. Now, there is this great conversation, the great ideas, great books, etc., and we have archived them in various ways, and I think that's a treasure. But it's really individuals who grow wise. And perhaps if more individuals were wise in any given generation, we could say that more of humanity was growing wise as well. The way to wisdom, by the way, is not considered to be through scientific research, although it has its place. To understand the world scientifically is to acquire a kind of knowledge But wisdom, that word, connotes something besides factual or scientific knowledge. It connotes knowing how things work and also knowing what to do, how to act, what to say in any given situation. To act wisely is to act well, and to be wise is to already know what to do, or uh, to have wisdom is automatically to use it. To have wisdom and not act according to it seems to be contradictory to the idea of what wisdom itself is. Other forms of learning may separate knowledge from action, but wisdom tends to unite various domains of knowledge together. Wisdom also aspires to this knowledge of what it means to live well and to do well the knowledge of what it means to do the right thing and to avoid that which is wrong. Or we might say it aspires to a knowledge of good and evil. Have you thought about wisdom that way? In a culture that is increasingly relativistic, where we seem more ambiguous and confused about there being some clear good that we can name, this flies against the face of much much of the modern currents in our culture and education. But that's what wisdom was also considered to be traditionally, an aspiration to know what to do and to know what the right thing to do is, and to, with, with a belief and an assumption that there is such a thing as right action and bad action. It's also been 
considered, wisdom has, to be a part of the philosophic life. Philosophy in the old sense of the term, meaning someone who loves Sophia or wisdom. It's the love of wisdom. The lover of wisdom, not necessarily the possessor of it. This is a part of the tradition. Do you love wisdom? Is it something that you aspire to, even when you confess you don't have it? In fact, wisdom is one of the things that, well, it's just inappropriate to say you're wise, to say you have it. And this goes all the way back to Socrates, who would say, I'm not wise. If I'm wise, it's simply that I know that I'm not wise. And he says that, you know, the gods have wisdom. We're not the gods. So we must be aspiring to it and loving it, but not actually having it, but nor ignorant of it either. To be ignorant of it completely is, a, is something we must eschew, but to say that we actually have come to possess it is a claim that we should be very, very hesitant to make. Socrates would say you can't make it. This is also true of education in general, by the way. It's just not polite to say you're well-educated. <laughs> I know some might say that, but why is that? Because of the paradox of learning. The more that you know, the more you realize you don't know. The more, the more cognizant you become of your ignorance. And so it's not really cool to say I'm well-educated. In fact, this is the confession of well-educated men and women. They're more aware of what they don't know than what they do. And they tend to want to call other people well-educated, but not themselves. Uh, to be well, the, the term well-educated is something you should apply to a friend that you really admire, who you think is well-educated. But it's just not the kind of thing that really comes to a person who's well-educated. They don't think of themselves this way. In other words, there's a kind of humility that naturally comes as we attain wisdom. Wisdom has also been called the science of the whole. Understanding the big things and how, how all the parts work together in a general way. You can have various expertise in certain domains of knowledge, but lack wisdom. It's rare that we would automatically call, say, a great biologist a wise man or woman. He might be extremely uh, erudite or she when it comes to biology, but wisdom is something we don't just apply to expertise in various domains. It's a general kind of description of a human mind and soul. Uh, Plotinus said, wisdom is the reasoning mind at rest, connecting wisdom to a kind of contemplative spirit as well. And Plato, and therefore Socrates, who quotes and writes about Socrates, say that it's harmony of the soul, and it's the virtue of reason working well. The harmony of the soul, again, hearkening to this idea of parts working together, the parts of the soul governed by reason, finding a kind of balance and harmony. To have wisdom that refuses to obey the good that reason contemplates, according to Plato, is not wisdom, but it's folly. In other words, to contemplate and reflect on that which is good and not do it is to contradict wisdom itself. Because wisdom, when it sees the good, does the good. And wisdom has also been 
on that sacred list of the four cardinal virtues. Do you know the four cardinal virtues? You can read about these in the Republic. They're throughout Greek philosophy. They were considered to be these hinge virtues. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking about these cardinal virtues and many other virtues. But these four cardinal virtues were hinge virtues. They were the chief virtues on which the good and moral life seemed to hinge or depend. The word cardinal refers to a hinge like a door hinge. I know you might think it was the bird, but, well, there's a story why the bird is called cardinal. It's because the the Catholic cardinals used to wear red because they were the hinges of the church and they wore red. And so we named the bird cardinal because it was red. But cardo cardinus in Latin means hinge. And these cardinal virtues were hinge virtues. And they were, well, wisdom, often cited first. Temperance, courage, and justice. If you had these virtues well-developed in your life, you were considered to be a fully formed human being in the Greek and Roman tradition of the cultivation of virtue. Well, we have to say more about virtues later because I've said already that wisdom, virtue, and eloquence are three of the chief aims, and they're all related, the chief aims of education. The cardinal virtue. So we use that word wisdom and say it's one of the cardinal virtues, but we have to stop for a moment and just realize that that word wisdom, the English word that we use typically, had really two definitions in the classical tradition. In the Greek, there was phronesis and sophia. Phronesis was practical wisdom, knowing what to do knowing how to make good judgments based on experience and your own education. We might use the word prudence for that in English. And in Latin, there were two words that corresponded to phronesis and sophia, and they were prudentia, which was the typical translation for phronesis, practical wisdom, and sapientia, which was the typical translation for sophia, that general, more speculative, all-embracing, wisdom. So it's typically prudentia, a phronesis that is used as one of those cardinal virtues. So keeping those distinctions are very important in mind. So we use the word English, the English word wisdom. It, we could be referring to prudence, or we could be referring to that general wisdom. We don't typically say sapience, but we could, although that's a very rare word in English from sapientia. Sagacity also comes to mind. Aquinas says wisdom is knowledge of the things that are highest by nature. Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics typically uses the word phronesis or practical wisdom. And he says it's this practical ability to be able to discern between the excess of too much and the defect of too little and find the golden mean that is the practical wise thing to do. The most famous example is his example regarding Courage, he says, courage is a mean in between a kind of reckless rashness, just charging into battle foolishly, and fear or cowardliness. And in the middle, you have courage. And it takes phronesis or practical wisdom to know how to find that golden mean. So we have this tradition in Aristotle. We have this tradition in Aquinas who follows Aristotle a lot, but because Aristotle I mean, Aquinas is also a Christian. He thinks in terms of theological revealed truths and how that also impacts on what we mean when we say wisdom. 
but he makes distinctions between the wisdom of the philosopher and the wisdom of the theologian. For Aquinas, sacred doctrine is especially called wisdom because it treats of God viewed as the highest cause of the whole universe. But even Aristotle talked about this. He called this kind of wisdom, this Sophia, a kind of theology or divine science because he was looking after, looking for first causes that explain all things. And for him, theos, or God in the Greek, was considered to be the cause of causes, the first cause, the prime cause, the first mover. And so Aquinas following him says, well, after Christ has come and been revealed, we know more about God, theos, as the first cause, because he's revealed himself. And so that sacred theology is also the study of first causes, first things, the highest thing, which is theos, or God. And from theos, we get theology, the study of God or divine things. Socrates, in the Apology, says this. He says, My hearers always imagine that I myself possess wisdom, which I find wanting in others. But the truth is, O men of Athens, he's making a defense before the assembly in Athens. The truth is, O men of Athens, that God only is wise. He, O men, is the wisest, who, like Socrates, knows that his wisdom is in truth worth nothing. So already in Aristotle, we have a kind of theological wisdom being articulated. Aristotle, who lived some 500 years before Christ. We can look to, say, some literature as well, and Dante, descriptions of wisdom existing in God and combined with love, or Paradise Lost, John Milton. Here's uh, Milton, Milton's Adam speaking to the archangel Michael. Greatly instructed, I shall thus depart, greatly in peace of thought, and have my fill of knowledge what this vessel can attain beyond which was my folly to aspire. And so there's a kind of folly that wisdom can be tricked into when we try to aspire beyond that which we are able to know. In fact, if we read the proverbial wisdom in the book of Proverbs, we'll read things like this, let the the fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's a lot of description about what folly is in contrast to wisdom. And we can read from Jeremiah, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Or we can read from the apostle Paul, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we can read Paul saying things like, he who thinks he is wise in this world, let him become fool, a fool, a fool or foolish that he might become wise. And then, interestingly enough, in comparison to the ancient tradition, we find that wisdom finds its beginning in wonder. The Greek verb is thaumadzein, which means to be at wonder at. And we have both Plato and Aristotle saying this. In one of the dialogues, we read, we read that wonder is the beginning of wisdom. And we have Aristotle saying, it is owing to wonder that both men, both now and at first, began to philosophize. That's in the beginning of the metaphysics. Wonder, astonishment, is what leads us to aspire to wonder, I mean, to to wisdom. And that wonder is, of course, it's embedded in our little 
nursery rhyme, twinkle, twinkle, little star, or song, how I wonder what you are. But wonder is also, it's a kind of astonishment in, 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 in light of something that is great and marvelous that we don't fully understand, like the starry heavens above. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are up above the world so high, like a diamond in the sky. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Even a child is at wonder. We stay at wonder. There's a sense in which to grow in wisdom means to remain as a child astonished that we've been born into this resplendent cosmos, which we cannot fully and never will fully understand. And yet we want to. And so it's a Wonder is a confession or a recognition of astonishment as well as ignorance. I don't know, but I wish I could know. That is both the ancient and the Christian confession of the beginning of wisdom. Of course, that's, there's that proverb, the beginning of the book of Proverbs. It says, the fear of the Lord or the reverence of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Aquinas commenting on this says, yes, when you begin thinking about the effects that wisdom has on you when you get it, this is a proper beginning. With the effects in mind, it creates a kind of reverence for the theos, the author of all that exists in this cosmos. But when you begin thinking about the essence of what wisdom is, Aquinas says, it is not fear or reverence that governs, but wonder. So the Christian, too, confesses that Aristotle is right. It's in wonder that the search for wisdom commences. Well, we can also say, as we conclude, that wisdom in the theological or Christian tradition is also considered to be a gift. Christ is called the power and wisdom of of God. But note that it's in connection, this, dis this whole discussion in the great tradition is in connection with, with the ancients as well, uh, the pre-Christian ancients. The theologians do not condemn the counterfeits of wisdom as false wisdoms, but the wisdom of the, the wisdom of the philosophers are considered not to be false, speaking of, say, Aristotle and Plato, but just incomplete and imperfect and finding their fulfillment only in the coming of the one who is the author of all that is wise. And even Christians have to confess, we never get there completely. We, we still have imperfect wisdom. We might confess that we know the one who is perfect wisdom, but we can't know him perfectly. So we're always still humbled, astonished, and never confessing ourselves as wise. Yes, the reflection of the Christian tradition on the classical tradition is one of great respect. In fact, Augustine can say that the, the person nearest to the Christian faith was Plato. And he loves Plato and often quotes and refers to Plato. But he even says about Plato, many wonderful things have I read in the Platonists, but not once have I heard or read, come unto me all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Finally, wisdom is considered to be connected to happiness. Even though we can never have it fulfilled uh, you know, completely, therefore there has to be a, some lament, there has to be some longing always present, 
wisdom nonetheless leads to a kind of admiration and confession of astonishment that then leads slowly to wisdom. And it's a kind of happiness. It's a kind of, in the Greeks, in the Greek language, eudaimonia, a, a good spiritedness, having a good, healthy, somewhat satisfied disposition. Eudaimonia, happiness, fulfillment. We might use some other con- contemporary cliches like human flourishing. Wisdom is the supreme happiness, we read in the Greeks, and in in the Nicomachean Ethics, uh, Aristotle will say, the activity of philosophic wisdom is the most, is the highest activity. It's it's the the highest thing to which we can uh, um, arrive, the the pleasantest of virtuous activities, says Aristotle. Contemplation that leads to wisdom, the highest human activity. Augustine, thinking about this tradition, says that it is love that really animates and unites wisdom. And thinking about the four cardinal virtues, Augustine says this in his uh, book on the morals of the church. He says, I should have no hesitation in defining defining these four virtues, that temperance is love giving itself entirely to that which is loved, And courage or fortitude is love readily bearing all things for the sake of the loved object. Justice is love serving only the loved object and therefore ruling rightly. And prudence or wisdom is love distinguishing with sagacity between what hinders it and what helps it. So for Aristotle, love must be wedded to wisdom. And we've already seen that wisdom is connected to virtue and is considered to be one of the virtues. So therefore, we will find as we continue to explore these great ideas that virtue and love will be sister concepts always at play in our understanding of wisdom. If the great aim or one of the great aims of education is to grow in wisdom, we should study it. We should know it. We should be thinking about it. We should be aspiring to wisdom. And therefore, we should be beginning again and again with wonder. Thanks for watching, and I hope to see you next time. This is Christopher Perrin with The Christopher Perrin Show. This podcast is brought to you by the True North Podcast Network, produced by Classical Academic Press. For more information on The Christopher Perrin Show and other shows on the True North Podcast Network, visit us on the web at www.truenorth.fm.